All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John. And I'm Ben. And welcome to the 25th episode of Worthy, where we're going to be talking about the greatest show on earth. Now it's our quarter century episode. We've come a long way. We're in the 50s. And we're talking about the greatest show on earth, which is a circus film, to put it lightly. And obviously what comes with the circus is plenty of animals. For good and bad, we're going to talk about animals in film and film in general in this opening. So just a trigger warning, if you're triggered by animal abuse or, or talking about uh, horrors of any animals or you love animals, you don't want to hear anything bad about animals, I would skip ahead maybe 10 minutes and let us talk about uh, you know, the film we have, The Greatest Show on Earth. So to talk about uh, the good and bad of films, uh, animals in films, we wanted to at least talk about some of our favorite animals in film or maybe just some of our films that are kind of inspired by animals or go follow an animal journey or just have animals in them. So Ben, is there like a film that jumps out to you where you kind of grew up or you saw recently that like is all about animals or has animals to you in it? The one that uh, immediately comes to mind is uh, The Wizard of Oz and Toto. Of course. That's like the most, I think that's the most iconic one. I think we, we did an Instagram post about yeah. uh, the dog play Toto. Mm-hmm. So scroll back on that one on our Instagram page. And uh, so, so that one immediately comes to mind. I, but then I go to like animated movies. I think of like Balto. I think of like Wes Anderson's uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. That comes to mind. Uh, Babe comes to mind as well. So there's like a ton of, I think there's more like animated and animatronic animals that come to mind rather than just the like actual living, breathing animals because they're mostly used for background. There are some you know dogs and movies here and there, but there's not like a one I think that stands out as like truly iconic of like that of a movie animal at least for me. Yeah, I mean, there's a a lot in the '90s where we were kind of. I don't know if this was the first time that we were seeing talking animals. I doubt it. I'm sure that goes even back to the 50s or maybe even the 60s with like a shaggy dog. I think that's the 60s, right? But we have like Airbud in the 90s. Homeward Bound was such a big film for me when I was younger. It follows like three animals. Um, what else we have? Dunstan Checks In, which was an amazing movie that I loved as a kid where like a monkey like lives in a hotel or a chimpanzee. I, I forget which. But uh, it it is insane. I mean... I felt like it was so common when we were younger to see animals in film and to use live action animals. Airbud, yeah, Airbud is like specifically because we saw so many iterations of that, and I remember watching that original movie over and over. And I mean, as a kid, how can you not wa- like love watching animals? And you always kind of like fantasize as a kid if like your animal could talk to you and like how to interact with it. Your animals don't talk to you. Oh God, Ben. <laughs> so it's it's the good and the bad like we have such good memories of of these certain animals or these performances that like we can kind of remember and especially toto that's a great example where there's such an iconic dog that we even see today and that's carried throughout its legacy from that film but it's hard not to think about like the other side like the dark side of of having animals in film and, and where that can go and we wanted to just talk a little bit about just the overall kind of story and history of like animal abuse throughout Hollywood and and, and American film in particular because it's good to kind of highlight this I mean we try to have cold opens for the show that dig deep in a topic an actor or a certain aspect of the film but I think this was a perfect opportunity for us to talk about just the abuse that animals have had in, in the film industry over years and years so I wanted to just give a little bit of a quick kind of 
small little guide throughout the history of, of some of the most like tragic things that have happened to animals. And we won't go too deep into any of these things, but I think it'll give us a kind of a good understanding of how much has changed, how much we probably still need to improve on and, and where we're kind of going from here in film. So I think we can go all the way back to some of the earliest films, which is 1903 when Edison was making these kind of at-home factory films really early on for the country to even see films. He would basically do these recordings outside his his factory uh, or even, in this case, Coney Island, where he took an elephant named Topsy the Elephant and electrocuted it to death in front of 1,500 people. So this was all recorded for entertainment. Obviously, the the witnesses there were there to simply observe the death of this animal. And originally, he was planning to like actually hang the animal, but the American Society uh, for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals intervened. So we're already having intervening of filming from as early as 1903, you know, over 100, almost 20 years ago. It's crazy to think about. And he would then later on put those in kinetoscopes, which you could kind of pay and, and, and watch in certain places like a supermarket or, or a circus, in fact. So w- from the very start of film, we have this kind of weird fantasy of kind of watching the horrors of, of animals and watching just like the cruelty of, of man in general. And then we carry it further, a little bit further, in about 20 years where we have one of the early iterations of Ben Hur in 1926, where reportedly over 100 horses died on that set of that film. So, as films are growing, we're telling bigger stories. We're telling stories about war. That obviously is kind of almost impossible to use real animals without telling those stories, especially as you may know. Obviously, in 1926, there was no CGI for horses. So, if we continue forward to 1939, there's cases of, of two horses dying as well, in, in a film called Northwest Mounted Police. And in particular, a pretty tragic story from a film called Jesse James, which horses were wearing uh, blinkers or kind of sidelines to block out their vision and in order for them to run straight and not get distracted by anything on their side. And what the film was doing was shooting the scene where they were supposed to be running off a cliff. And obviously there were people and stuntmen on those horses, but they actually forced these horses to jump off a cliff, 75 feet off of the air, and they just filmed it. And it became one of the biggest like spectacles in that film was actually watching those horses like fall to their death. So it is extremely tragic and disturbing to think about how just normal and how used to kind of abusing animals we are at this point in, in our film history. And we haven't seen too many throughout our Oscar history, but it's definitely important to just know it and see how much of a trend this was and, and how difficult it was. And obviously, if you're listening, you're probably so frustrated just hearing some of this as I was trying to kind of document some of this. And you're wondering when there's kind of someone stepping in or hopefully someone there to watch out for these animals. Well, we kind of start to see that in the, in the future as we're growing and we're moving into the 40s. So I'm going to read a little bit of quote from Salon Magazine, which is written by Susan McCarthy where she wrote, this was the single biggest turning point in the history of Hollywood's treatment of animals. Word about the deaths got out and there was tremendous fervor. In reaction to the outcry, the Hayes office worked with the AHA, which stands for the American Humane Association, to write guidelines for animal performances. Starting in 1940, the AHA was granted access to sets. The Hayes office, well known for its prissy extremes, such as insisting that that marital bedrooms feature twin beds and and Betty Boop dress more modestly, also banned apparent animal cruelty. Films were submitted to the office before release to get a certificate of approval, and often changes were demanded before a certificate was issued. The AHA was used almost as a reference for the Hayes office to kind of call in if they thought there was animal abuse. Maybe there was a film that had a lot of animals. They would call in the AHA. 
AHA to kind of come in and inspect the set, just kind of approve and give their stamp of approval. And it's interesting because the AHA is still used today. They still call them in to kind of inspect. And sometimes there are instances where they will decline or not give them the certificate, but the film will come out. I read about Speed Racer and how that actually was declined because of abuse of a monkey that was on set. I think someone saw a trainer actually hit the monkey and they, they, deem them unworthy of being certificated for the AHA. So we're we're still seeing that throughout time, but what I find really interesting is that when we get to the late 90s, the early 2000s, where CGI is becoming a thing, we're seeing movies like The Lion King, The Jungle Book, and most recently Call of the Wild in 2020 starring Harrison Ford and a man in a green suit, a.k.a. Buck the Dog, really show the evolution of the industry, and animals can now be recreated in almost a fo- photorealistic manner that I think for me it's starting to begin the lines of reality, right? So we even have shows like The Walking Dead and The Umbrella Academy that have incorporated uh, really realistic CGI wild animals or creatures or even in the story arcs. And we also have animatronics and other types of technology that are kind of beginning to help us adapt and evolve in depicting animals in film. And one thing before we kind of jump on, I'm going to pose a lot of questions to Ben because I know we're giving so much information here, but I wanted to read from PETA because obviously they're a huge organization, whether you agree with them or not. I think it's it's hard to agree with everything PETA says, you know, just as a blanket statement because they say a lot and sometimes they maybe cross the line. But obviously they're important to protecting animals and looking out for their rights and looking out to take care of them, especially in film. So this is directly from PETA's site, especially talking about film and animals in film. So in the movie business, cash is king, and animals' well-beings will always be compromised as long as profit margins and production deadlines rule the day. The living conditions and pre-production training methods that animals endure are often unregulated and unsupervised by the industry, which is why PETA urges filmmakers to use computer-generated imagery or animatronics, or, if the circumstances are right, cast their own companions, as Bradley Cooper did when he recruited his dog for the new version of A Star is Born. Filmmakers should always avoid commercial animal suppliers. So PETA doesn't outright directly say we don't think films should be or we don't think animals should be in film. They're obviously giving other options that are available to people and and other options to kind of navigate and and show animals in film. And they give Bradley Cooper kind of using his own dog in in the film because it it cuts out the middleman where you don't really know what's happening. Right. The, The animal suppliers, the farms where tragic events might have happened. So. Ben, I know I just threw a lot out there. There's so much information. We kind of went through this entire history, but is is there a certain moment in your life where you kind of first realized that this is beyond a movie or you saw something and maybe not even something that's fiction or, or particular nonfiction in our case, where you really thought about the animal and, and really questioned yourself, like, did the animal actually do that? Is the animal actually safe? So I think it's, uh, I think it's, one first off really well said so all the all the information you gave is absolutely pertinent and and it's really it's shitty information to hear that that's that's what happened but it's also important to hear there's not a particular movie that comes to mind but there are definitely moments as i got older i would watch movies and 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 understanding and and learning about animal abuse in other places and just realizing like hey like every animal in this movie that i'm enjoying maybe they are going through something. Maybe there is some kind of issue going on behind set. Maybe, maybe there was animal abuse and it, which is really hard because then, because then you start to judge your own, you know, 
I, I think when we talk about, we've talked about many times about movies that about horror and war and like how that's kind of sick in a little bit that we enjoy that and use as, as entertainment. And I think the same can be said about movies of animals because you don't necessarily know, but you also, I mean, it's hard to judge because you don't know like what's going on behind scenes to really understand what was going on, but you'd hope that it wasn't, you know, you, you try to have that hopeful thinking, especially knowing that they, they did try to tackle this early on. They did try to say, you can't do this to animals. Animal abuse is just nowhere to be near film. And you hope that that has mostly, you know, stayed true, but also the cynic in me knows that that probably isn't true. And there probably is still animal abuse going on in movies today that do feature that does feature them. So it's really hard, I think, to to pinpoint like the exact moment. But after hearing like all of this, the funniest thing came to mind, and you're gonna laugh is Jackass came to mind. <laughs> yeah, the most recent one, especially. And, yeah. and in the most recent Jackass, you know, I don't think it's really spoilers to say this, but there's a moment where one of the uh, one of the members of Jackass is has to encounter a bear. But you know, you see, there's an animal handler, bear handler on set, and the bear handle handler understands like when to come in to like stop anything from happening, and whether that bear is trained because it was maybe domesticated as a cub. Hopefully, you know that person understands that bear, you know specifically, and knows like when to step in because maybe it might be out of line, but not treated with abuse if it's you know tapping into its natural instincts to attack. But then I also think of you know jackass shows and like wild boys where they would go into the wild and, and interact with animals and you watch it and it's funny but then there are moments you're like wait is that abuse to the animals i mean i've even i'm pretty sh- i'm pretty sure this is wild boys where like you know steve-o they would get like sea cucumbers and i'm pretty sure it's a sea cucumber if you rub it you know a lot like you know a fluid comes out of it so it's like a you know a, yeah. a dirty joke then you might not think a sea cucumber as an animal, but that is abuse because it is a living organism. So, you know, so then when, to me, that's like one of those moments where I was just saying, like, you hope that it, maybe it's not harmful. You hope while watching something like, you know, I love the, the comedy of wild boys and jackass, but you hope the animals involved really aren't harm and in, in, in harm's way. You know, they fight with bulls and the bulls, I mean, they're the ones fighting that, but you have no idea what kind of damage it could be doing to them in, in the long run. Yeah, especially running head on and think about the animal bites, the the spiders, the snakes, all the weird bites they've gotten over time. And it's weird. It is a balance because I've thought about like I've been almost educated about animals and their behavior because of like people like Jackass and Wild Boys growing up. But also I've been used I've used it as entertainment and, and it's definitely have had animal abuse throughout that and i was actually surprised when the most recent jackass forever came out that PETA or, or other people weren't really like criticizing them for it because i was surprised honestly how much animals were used throughout this film way more than i thought they would especially in, in 2021 or 2022 when they released the film so i mean it's a really good question but then that also brings up can we replace animals in film to get like all together with cgi or animatronics like it, are we at a certain point in film where that's possible and can we do that realistically because I brought up most recently with Harrison Ford a film called Call of the Wild which came out in 2020 where he acted basically next to a man wearing a green suit and they kind of use CGI to, to turn that performance into a dog named Buck so which people didn't like people didn't like I mean when you look at certain shots of that film it looks photorealistic but it is so CGI heavy that it's it's very clear that he's just talking to no one, right? So 
like I just don't think we're at that we're there we're at that point it's it's a really hard thing to talk about I think guns and film are pretty similar we won't go down that rabbit hole but it's this like we still need animals if we want to accurately portray like this real life that we're living especially for me I mean I want as little CGI to kind of interrupt the film for me as much as possible and I want it to be like naturally introduced and and organically like woven into a film so it is really hard especially if it's so central to what the film is and when it comes to that I think animation is the key like you said like that's why a lot of these films are animation they don't have to like rely on these real actors so is there anything else Ben that you really want to add on can we even ask the question whether animals can have a worthy performance or not is that possible you know, it's funny you say that because I guess they could, but you would also have to be guaranteed that they weren't abused while making it. And then that, I think, ties back into what we're talking about today, which is the greatest show on earth and which is about a circus. And I think it's pretty well known the circus abused animals to provide the the quote unquote worthy performances that people enjoy, the entertainment and I think that that's why we wanted to talk about it because this because this movie treats the circus as this glorious thing, and people do treat the the circus as a glorious thing, but also it can be it's not so glorious behind the scenes. And while this film tries to peek behind the curtains a little bit, it makes it seem so happy go lucky when in reality it's not so happy go lucky. And I th- we're gonna dive into that more, but it's uh it's it's just something I think to bring it back to is that the circus is something that's well known and documented now that that was a place of animal abuse, which, which is kind of been horrifying to think about it as like, well, then people didn't really care enough because they still voted it to win best picture. So I think that leads into my question to you, John, which is, is the greatest show on earth worthy of the best picture award of 1952? The Greatest Show on Earth, the dramatic lies of trapeze artists, a clown, and the circus manager as told against a background of circus spectacle. Brad Braden is the no-nonsense general manager of the world's largest railroad circus. The show's board of directors plans to run a short 10-week season rather than risk losing $25,000 a day in a shaky post-war economy. Brad bargains to keep the circus on the road as long as it makes a profit, thus keeping the 1,400 performers and rustabouts employed. In addition to keeping the show in the black, he faces some other serious problems. Brad's first problem is his girlfriend, Holly, a flyer who expects to star in the show. He must tell her that she is out of the center ring. The management insisted on hiring the great Sebastian, a world-class trapeze artist. Holly is furious. She is also heartbroken because Brad refuses to acknowledge his love for her. Brad's second problem is Sebastian, the debonair king of the air, a ladies' man whose affairs always cause trouble for the show's managers to the point a board member declares he's wrecked every show he's been with. His third problem is Harry, a crooked midway concessionaire who works for a gangster named Mr. Henderson. Trouble is also brewing for beloved Buttons the Clown, who never appears without his makeup. During one performance, Button is warned by his mother that they are asking questions. Button's skill as a first aid suggests a medical background. Holly finds a newspaper article about a mercy killer, 
but does not connect the doctor who killed his wife to buttons. Sebastian arrives and is greeted by two former lovers, Angel, who performs in the elephant act with her pathologically jealous Klaus, and Phyllis, who does a double turn as an iron jaw artist and a vocalist in a South Seas extravaganza. Sebastian is attracted to Holly and offers her the center ring. When Brad refuses, Holly vows to make her ring the focus of attention. The competition between the aerialists becomes increasingly daring and dangerous. The duel ends when Sebastian removes his safety net and suffers serious injuries in a fall when a stunt goes wrong. Holly finally has the center ring and star billing, but not the way she wanted it. When Harry is caught cheating customers on the midway, Brad fires him. Harry vows revenge. He is seen now and then on the periphery of the show, shooting crap and sowing disaffection, particularly with Klaus. Several months later, Sebastian rejoins the show. His right arm is paralyzed. A guilt-ridden Holly professes her love for her formal rival over the unfeeling Brad. Angel calls Holly a fool for busting up the swellest guy in the circus and makes a pass at Brad. They become an item. Klaus cannot accept that Angel does not want him and threatens to hurt her during an elephant show. Brad quickly intervenes to save Angel and fires Klaus. At one stand, Special Agent Gregory of the FBI appears on the lot during teardown and asks Brad whether the circus doctor resembles a man he is hunting. Brad has never seen buttons without makeup and does not recognize the man in the photo. The detective boards the train to continue his investigation. Buttons tells Brad that Sebastian has feeling in his injured hand, which Sebastian takes as a sign that his disability is not permanent. Brad makes the connection and casually observes that the police will be taking fingerprints at the next stand. He implies to Buttons he should make himself scarce until Gregory leaves the show to search elsewhere. Harry and Klaus stop the first of the circus's two trains to steal the day's receipts. Klaus sees the second section coming and realizes that Angel is aboard. He drives the automobile head-on towards the train in an attempt to signal the engineer to stop the train. The second section smashes the car off the tracks, killing Klaus and Harry in the process, and crashes into the first section in a spectacular collision that derails train cars, breaks animal cages open, shreds equipment, and injures people by the score. Brad is pinned in the wreckage, bleeding from a cut artery. Buttons tries to slip away from the wreck site, but Holly pleads with him to save the man she loves. Buttons gives Brad a direct transfusion from Sebastian, who has the same rare blood type. Gregory assists him. Later, Special Agent Gregory reluctantly arrests Button, shaking his hand before handcuffing him and telling him, You're alright. Buttons tells Brad to tell Holly that he will be keeping a date with his girl, suggesting that he may be facing the death penalty. Holly takes command of the show, mounting a parade that leads the whole nearby town to an open-air performance. Brad now realizes how much he loves Holly, but ironically she now has no time for him because the show must go on. Sebastian proposes to Angel and she accepts. The movie ends with the circus making a magnificent recovery from disaster to continue on the tour. The Greatest Show on Earth was directed by Cecile B. DeMille. Written by Frederick M. Frank, Bear Linden, Theodore St. John, with additional story credits for Frank Cavett, and the additional writer, uncredited Jack Garris. Produced by Cecile B. DeMille and Henry Wilcoxon. Music by Victor Young. Cinematography by George Barnes. Film editing by Anne Bounchins. Art direction by Hal Pereira and Walter H. Tyler. Costume design by Edith Head, Dorothy Jenkins, and Miles White. Special credits note that the picture was produced with the cooperation of Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, John Ringling, North President, Henry Ringling North, Vice President, Arthur M. Concello, General Manager, and Pat Valdo, General Director of Performance. 
The Greatest Show on Earth stars Betty Hutton as Holly. Cornell Wilde as the Great Sebastian. Charlton Heston as Brad Braden. James Stewart as Buttons, a clown. Dorothy Lamore as Phyllis. Gloria Graham as Angel. Henry Wilcoxon as FBI Agent Gregory. Lawrence Tierney as Mr. Henderson. Lyle Betger as Klaus. Frank Wilcox as the Circus Doctor. John Kellogg as Harry. And Cecile B. DeMille as the uncredited narrator. So before we get into the discussion, I actually just wanted to read this quote. I was maybe six or seven years old. My father came to tell me, I'm going to take you to the greatest show on earth. My father explained that they were going to be lion tamers and circus acts, clowns and trapeze artists. And we walk into a dimly lit room. It felt like a place of worship, a synagogue. I still didn't understand about the greatest show on earth. There were seats, not bleachers, all facing forward. There was a large red curtain. It opened and there was an image. And I realized that my father had not taken me to the circus, but to a movie about a circus. The first movie I had ever seen, Cecile B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth. The feeling of disappointment lasted about 10 minutes. And then I was a victim of the drug called cinema. I was no longer in this church. I became part of an experience. And that was said by Steven Spielberg. And that was him reflecting on the first film he ever watched, which was the 1952 Best Picture winner, The Greatest Show on Earth, which he still continues to cite as an influence on him in his early days of cinema. So I want to just read that quote out for everyone. Let that sink in uh, to what we are about to talk about. Because we definitely have some different feelings than Steven Spielberg <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> well, this is interesting because he's six or seven years old, so it's like the magic of understanding cinema. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of surprised he has those memories still. I mean, maybe it's one of those kind of like partially fabricated memories where you add to it just over time. Because I can't really say that I remember that many things from when I was six and seven. But it sounds like he was more so and fell in love with movies at this time and like what cinema could do and, and really the magic of a movie theater to me more so than I love the greatest show on earth, you know? Yeah. He's not really directly praising the film itself, but more so like the magic and the whole experience itself. Yeah. I, I definitely agree w with what you're saying. Like it definitely is this, the idea of a film being this grand thing and, and how you can enjoy it as a kid. And I'm, you know, for him growing up, the only entertainment you really had was the radio maybe one or two TV channels and the movies. And we grew up in a time of, of just constant, you know, things in front of us, constant screens, constant entertainment going on. So I don't blame him for, or us for having, never having that kind of experience with a movie. Like I can certainly remember when I was in movie theaters and I was young, but never something like this specific. And this, like, I think beautiful to say about movie theaters at a young age, but let's jump into the greatest show on earth. Uh, because there, there's certainly a lot and there's certainly not a lot to break down. So I think the biggest thing for me starting off of talking about this movie is it feels more like three different movies in one. So the first movie, which I will call the best one, we have Buttons the Clown. It's a mystery thriller story of a doctor who did something for his love and is now a clown in hiding. Maybe it could have been its own movie that featured more of him escaping and doing other things, you know, as he's on the run, but ultimately finding the circus to hide. Two, which is a documentary, which I will call the interesting one, which is about the circus and its season's operations and, and, and kind of glorifying the behind the scenes aspects of the circus and then showing off the performances that happen from day to day. And then there's the third one, which is the romantic love triangle, which I call the male one, where the common goal of this love triangle is to help the circus survive 
but really it's just kind of a bloated love story that does not feel authentic or real at all just puffy and exactly what you would get from early you know hollywood cinema when it comes to love triangles almost reminiscent of an early film we once watched called wings yeah broadway melody wings i mean there's a lot of love triangles that we've seen already but yeah i would say it's probably the worst love triangle we've seen yet because the characters are the least fleshed out and least compelling to be honest which says a lot because considering the broadway melody like that love triangle yeah is, is barely anything yeah, and I, I think that's actually interesting because I think the quality of this acting is almost the quality of the acting in that movie specifically. Well, I think there's some standouts. I mean, I I definitely have that feeling for some of the acting, and especially earlier on in the film, like there's like the board meeting and and Brad, played by Charles and Heston, who's this very stern, unforgiving man, and. I was shocked, and this hurts to say, because I know Charlton, Charlton Heston is such an iconic figure in Hollywood, but I think this might be the worst leading actor performance that we've seen in a Best Picture yet. I would kind of have to agree. And then I realized when I was like transcribing my notes to our outline for every ep- you know for this episode, as we do for every episode, I realized I only wrote one note for Brad, <laughs> and that was Brad being trapped is good tension. Which is at the way end of the movie. Oh, like being trapped under the actual yeah, train and everything? Yeah, yeah, and so for me, like a two and a half hour movie where he's in it a good amount. There's definitely a, some you know good key scenes. Or not good. I'll say there's some key scenes with him. And he just does nothing for me. He's just there. Like he's seems stern, but it's so like... I like there's just nothing and he's such like and in the synopsis they call him unfeeling he really is unfeeling like like, he's supposed to be the boyfriend of Holly but he could give less of a shit whatever she's doing he just cares about the circus going which I guess is a personality trait but it's not an interesting enough personality trait where I'm like oh you're fun and interesting and and I would like to hear and listen more from you well I'll tell you why it's not interesting I mean if you have this character who like loves his career and Let's say it's the circus in this case, loves the circus and wants it to like truly succeed and make all the money and make the the suits happy, but also make everyone in the circus happy. There's got to be some reason as to why. Why does he care about the circus? Why does he not really care that much about the people, but he kind of does sometimes? Why does he even really care that he has to make money for these people? None of it really makes sense. It's just he says he has to do this and he has to listen to the suits and he has to succeed in this circus just because he has to. Just because he's telling us he has to is why he has to. And they don't really give any kind of backstory or kind of allude to it. And it's just played so flat and so straight. And it's not just Teston's performance. I mean, there's definitely some clunky, awkward scenes throughout this movie. And it's just he falls so flat. Like you said, he doesn't show any like remote interest in his love interest multiple love interests in fact until really the last like 10 minutes of the movie and at that point it's played as a joke so it's like why did why did we invest so much time into this love story for it to just not even have a successful ending if they really just wrap up the ending so quickly but i mean there are some bad performances in here but a clown buttons a clown not buttons the clown played <laughs> by james stewart I think is a phenomenal performance. I mean, I really, really love his character and I love James Stewart playing a clown. I mean, who would have expected that, right? I definitely would have expected that. And I think when I first saw this movie, 
and not looking much into it beforehand and then to seeing that come across the screen i was like hold hold on a second because it's not when you think of the the fact that the james stewart's two movies that are the two best picture winners that he was in it was you can't take it with you and the greatest show on earth which is just not i guess what you would expect but hey it's just the facts and so it's certainly an interesting role and i think what's even funnier about it is the fact that he was willing to be paid scale for this movie which is like there's either someone either that's just a lie if someone said that or he was just like oh this is just fucking stupid i've really got to do this type of thing i feel like he just found the character interesting i mean like playing a character that has a hidden secret i think is already really compelling from a point of view plus you get the clown aspect aspect of it where you have to be like fun loving entertaining while also kind of balancing this dark past like he's killed a person he's not only killed a person but he's killed the love of his life because she had terminal cancer i believe they specifically say so he was a mercy killer so he would so he killed multiple people he would kill people who just didn't want to live anymore because they were sick and as a doctor he i guess like he did that which there's a whole moral debate for if that's i know people debate about that even today that let's just push that to the side but that's why he was like on the run because he was mercy killing people which again like that on its own is sounds so fascinating and like that would be that would be pretty compelling that would be a pretty dark you know maybe it could be like a black comedy i guess in its own way because you know how can you not have a clown and not have it be a little funny yeah i mean it would have to kind of balance that tone and but that's the kind of tragic aspect of this is that he can't really reveal his true self and he has to kind of put on the show constantly. And he's really good at at it, too. And not just as a performer, but like at this character is really good at being a clown. He's really good at hiding and and uh, not revealing who he really is. And we get like a great scene early on in the film where he sees his mother in the audience and you can just see like we're experiencing so much of this parade and in a circus and it's showing us a lot and this is what the film does constantly is kind of show us reference material of a circus and then kind of cut to our characters to kind of make it an actual film and an actual story. And we have this reveal that his mom tells him that they're being, you know, people are looking for him and to just kind of keep an eye out. And this is where you kind of learn more about him and start to question his motives and where he comes from. And that's just a really interesting thing to do with a character. And it's, and it's, it makes the film worse because this is such an interesting character that, even the other characters kind of get brought down because they're like, they are doing nothing with these characters. It's so clear that they like, uh, what love story. This person loves that girl. That guy, that guy also loves that girl. Like they're just like kind of pulling this story together, but it's so clear that like the real interest and the real passion was definitely behind buttons, a clown, but they don't give them that much time, right? It's only like 10 minutes of screen time. Yeah. It's, it's not as much screen time. I think that, part of me thinks that maybe this was like shoehorned in at some point that they kind of like, well, how do we like what the, cause it seems like upon learning more about DeMille's like style and, and directing was that he treated, he was like an executive. And so for him, it was like, well, how do I make the company like a film? How, how do I make it interesting? How do I make it compelling? How can I fit in all this different stuff, whether it's from the technical aspects to the story but to him the story probably wasn't as important as showing the wow factor of the circus and showing off colors using technicolor cameras so to him it was more about it seemed like for this movie the technology of what he can use rather than the story and so then when you get buttons the clown it's like huh maybe i just need something to make it a little bit more compelling to add a little more whether emotion tension because the moment where he buttons does see his mother 
there's this beautiful song that's being sung and i i it's actually a very emotional part and it's a song called only a rose to whisper so in the lyrics go i only a rose i give you only a song dying away only a smile to keep in memory until we meet another day only a rose to whisper blushing as roses do i'll bring along a smile or a song for anyone only a rose for you like that's those lyrics are really beautiful and the way it's sung is really nice and then you know james stewart's just you know james stewart so he just hits home runs like it's nothing and so you know it's a really sweet and endearing moment and then you get pulled and sucked right back into the just mess of the rest of the movie so it is unfortunate because like there's something there but to the people making the film it was more like the wow factor of the circus like that's what they wanted more of the attention on yeah i was really trying to think of like other films to compare this to and i just don't think i could really nail down what it is because this film is trying to have like an overall view of what it is and what it feels like to be in the circus to watch the circus really to kind of experience everything the behind the scenes the packing up everything so when you say it's like a documentary it's because it, at times it almost feels like a documentary i mean we have our director come on and talk to us basically describing what's happening describing the chaos of a circus like and, sh- and we're seeing shots of them packing up the circus building the circus and what i think is really fascinating i mean you probably take all these out and it would probably make a 30 minute like mini documentary all about the circus and it would be really compelling and really interesting to watch because it really is showing you things you probably would never see otherwise so i found it really compelling it just doesn't really mix as well as it, it, it should you know yeah well i i totally agree like it, it doesn't mix well but it is as i called it the interesting one because it's actually it it's really it's really compelling to see how they put it together and how they do glorify the circus brushing away the abuse behind the scenes but uh but it is still compelling and they start out with this narration from demille we bring you the circus the pied piper whose magic tunes lead children of all ages from six to sixty into a tinsel and spun candy world of reckless beauty and mounting laughter and whirling thrills of rhythm, excitement and grace, of daring and blaring and dance, of high-stepping horses and high-flying stars. But behind all this, the circus is a massive machine whose very life depends on discipline, motion and speed. A mechanized army on wheels that rolls over any obstacle in its path that meets calamity again and again, but always comes up smiling. A place where disaster and tragedy stalk the big town, haunt the backyard, and ride the circus train, where death is constantly watching for one frayed rope, one weak link, or one trace of fear. A fierce, primitive fighting force that smashes relentlessly forward against impossible odds. That is the circus. And this is the story of the biggest of the big tops and of the men and women who fight to make it the greatest show on earth. That's very raw, raw, and definitely passionate about the subject, but it's also very admitting that, like, there's a lot of shit that can go wrong here. And whether we're going to describe to you what that is or just blatantly say, like, People can die. You know, people can fall from where they are. There's high flying acts. There's constant motion and speed. And this thing just keeps on going until bam, it hits you, which kind of like the end where the trains hit each other. So it it's an interesting open to kind of phrase the circus like this. 
Yeah, it, I feel like this happens three times throughout the movie. There's like this moment introducing us, the middle section, which I think is about packing and moving the circus and building it, and then we have it a little bit at the end, I believe. So it's trying to like kind of frame our story, but what we also get from the story is kind of wandering and, and kind of meanders throughout the circus, and we'll just have random shots of like characters getting ready or getting undressed or getting dressed and, and putting on their uniform or we watch a parade for like 15 minutes of this movie because it's just cool to see what the parade would look like. And this is such a hard film to describe because in a lot of ways it's almost not even like a fiction film. It's so much of a documentary mixed in with this fictional elements that it creates this weird kind of hybrid about the circus in general. And that really brought me to kind of think a lot about of the circus acts, like whether they were just trained stuntmen. It didn't seem that like that when we were researching. It seemed like it was a lot of actual performers from the circus that they brought in to perform all these things. So it makes it even feel more like it's a documentary. I mean, using the actual people that do this. And we see so much of the circus throughout this that I wanted to ask you if there was like a particular part of the circus or a particular performance that you really loved of just the circus in general. I think that the trapeze scenes are tense, but also I just... I, I just have issues with that because it's just the way it's shot and because yeah, green let's, let's talk about that <laughs> the way it's shot and the green screen aspects of it it just it really pulls me out they shoot it from a low angle because of necessity so you have some really cool wide shots but then when they go tight and they go to like Cornell Wilde and and, and Betty Hutton it's sort of like inconsequential because you kind of know that they're okay and they're doing these like acts which is like you know they they train to do it but also it doesn't seem as authentic as it could be compared to all the other performances they show in the movie. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fun. I do feel that with the, sh- the way it's shot, I mean, you're kind of locked down to the ground, so you're kind of limited as how much you can really show of this kind of performance of this act. And, I mean, having it that far away does kind of add to that tension. You could see, like, how much of a drop it would be for them, how far up they are. And we get more of the great Sebastian played by Cornell Wilde. And his character is pretty fun for me, honestly. Besides James Stewart played by or playing uh, Buttons a Clown, I think he's probably like my second favorite character because he's just having fun. You know, he's totally such a fun, like, you know, flirty character that he gets to like play around. He gets some like funny suave lines and he gets this kind of tragic twist to his story. That's definitely most interesting compared to any other character in this film. And he's... He's really handsome. He's got like a great build. Uh, he's got this like backstory in the film with that he used to drive tanks because he comes flying into the circus driving like a sports car, talking about how he is not used to driving such a fast car. And it's a funny, goofy scene because all the cops are following him and kind of bringing him all together. But he's our big star that's kind of brought in to kind of replace Holly in the center ring. And they have this kind of like budding romance, but it's more so Holly just kind of using Sebastian to kind of get to Brad. Is she though? Because she seems it's just unclear, but that seems like what they were trying to go for, which is like an issue with it. When the love triangles, because you can't tell if it seems authentic and real no. or if she's trying to yeah. put on an act yeah, because it, she also doesn't seem smart enough. I feel like to pull off an act at the same time so that she actually would fall in love with this guy. Yeah. I wrote in our, my notes here. I said, she's just a pawn in this film for Brad and Sebastian to fawn over because that's really all she does. She but has, Brad doesn't fawn over her. Well, that's true. I mean, it's really Sebastian, but it's like her fawning over Sebastian to get to Brad basically. But Brad 
is so lifeless in this movie yeah. <laughs> that he literally just does nothing. He's like, all I care about is the circus and that's it and making it good. But the thing with him is that there's never a problem that comes up that he's like, I need to solve. So there's no interesting aspect of his character. If he's not invested in this love story, if he keeps just saying he's invested in the circus, then like show us about something in the circus. All we get is him fighting one like one person who's messing up the carnival games at the circus. Like really that's it. Yeah, we get that. And then, well, I, and I think that what it should have been was maybe the circus should have been failing, but instead it's like, everyone's going, everyone's having a good time. So why is this such a big, like the whole issue they bring at the beginning of the film with actually, uh, I think it was John Ringling North was, who's the actual president of the time of the Ringling brothers circus was in the scene and it was like, oh, like who wants to go to the circus anymore? And like, like why would anyone want to do this? It's like, it seems like a lot of people still want to do this. So, and you never bring up this issue again. So why, why even bring that up in the first place besides just adding like a moment of drama, but it, for Brad to be like, no, we got the great Sebastian to be in the show with us. That explains a lot that that's not an actor because there was some really, really bad line reading in that scene with all the suits. Yeah, it's so goofy. And I, I actually wrote a note before I knew it was who it was. I was like, man, this is so like goofy and nice. It seems like it should be grimier in real life. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's definitely grimier, which is an interesting aspect. They really try to glamorize, make everything look so like bright and colorful and beautiful. And the film is kind of bright. And I know this is something that we kind of go back and forth on that yeah. we kind of disagree with but i can agree with you on a lot of parts and how you feel like the film is kind of like muddy and, and dark and not as colorful and as bright as it should be it's very right? like muted and it just it really takes me out of it especially when they when they use like green screen effects and composite imaging because it's not good it does not work out well and so it it's very jarring to look at and it seems like a mistake it seems very amateurish and it it's it it is just baffling to watch because I've said it many times. I like it when these movies are do something technically great and they advance it. And this just feels like Demil being like someone just told Demil like, "Hey, we got this new technology called green screening in, in the back, and we kind of want to try this out." And he's like, "Great, I'll do it. Put it in the movie." Oh, but D- Mr. Demil, I don't think it's going. No, 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 no. We're going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just happens too often throughout this film where. You know, they could get away with it, and we have seen it before this in, in yeah. the Best Picture winner here and there, but it's just so heavily used and to the point where it just feels like they're, you know, we couldn't get the circus set this day, so, you know, this whole scene's going to have to be filmed on a green or blue screen, and we're just going to have to, like, composite over the circus in the background and, and just kind of make it happen, make it work. And a lot of the film feels like that. It feels like it's kind of rushed to be put together, like there wasn't too much of an organization it was like he set up a big event that the circus had to do that day and he was just like film as much as you can basically and then the scenes where we're actually showing performances and actors it's like okay we have a script but maybe we don't have that location like you could feel the filmmaking you know in in parts of the film because you could just see the cracks in it but in general like the overall cinematography and i think it's drastically improved when we're outside of the tent because being locked in the big circus tent, we're just having these really harsh lights that are just kind of like pushed, pushed down top down. So everyone doesn't really look very like pretty in terms of like showing their colors and you know, there's not much natural light cause you're in a huge tent with no windows, no lights at all. But when we go outside and we get to see like the bright reds of the train and we get to see all their costumes outside, I think we really get to see a lot of cool technicolor throughout this film and, 
I think I definitely have to give it a nod because of that. I mean, some of the cool transitions we get from this film as well. I mean, there's some weird edits in this in this for for sure, like some weird jump cuts that don't have any reason to be there. It felt like they just couldn't find a good time to jump or cut, so they just made such a drastic cut that's really distracting. But overall, in general, I found when we're outside, we get a lot of bright color and we get a lot more color because of how muted it is inside the tent and, and how little natural sunlight we have so it, it is kind of like a yin and yang for me at moments I was just like wow this looks amazing especially when we see like the priest with a little boy saying like the prayers oh as the God. train goes by right <laughs> I I still can't believe that that was a thing and that uh, reading and like that was like an actual thing that would happen was that someone would come and bless the circus which I mean sure <laughs> maybe they weren't blessed when they gotten a huge accident at the end Maybe yeah they should have been blessed yeah but that was interesting like way to show it and then the way they were kind of like cutting and doing like swipe transitions which i don't think we've seen any kind of crazy transitions and in, in the in editing yet out of any best picture that we've seen yeah we got we got some interesting things in american in paris but this one definitely did a little more but i really just i i i just don't agree with the cinematography of this i think that because it's so clunky with its use of technicolor and it's just general it's like blase like okay we'll just put the camera wide on the circus and we'll just film that for 40 minutes in total and like that's just gonna what make it work is just what it just doesn't do enough for me and then you bring up the lighting because i i read differently that they lit from the bottom up be it out of necessity uh that to light it instead of the usual top down they also technicolor company designed a new camera shutter for the film and combined it with electronically controlled incandescent lights hung on tent poles and to sensitize the film stock. So probably because how dark it is in the tent. Right? right. So it's, so it seems like they had to kind of manipulate the situation, which then is probably why they had to use green screen effects. But then if you're using green screen effects, I guess you're still trying to match the dark muted tones of being inside, which then kind of eliminates the whole reason to probably use a green screen, which is to help brighten it and make it seem more like, you know, more positive more like more positive light and it just it, it, it's it's really just jarring for me and the cool like documentary style of it is certainly interesting but then also it's very muted at times and i don't know if that's just because the luck they ran or the bad luck they ran into while making the movie because they did follow the circus around to film some of its performances but it just feels very clunky and just that well let's just set like they didn't even try to differentiate the angles they really just focused on one side of the tent in one ring from like wide shots and they kind of they don't manipulate it and and i guess maybe that's also because it's a live circus performance so they could yeah that's and they didn't know how to but at the same time it's just it, it still doesn't work and then i go back to a movie almost 20 years before this to the great zigfield yes they were able to manipulate it because it was on sound stages and it's more of a you know theatrical performance but that that like those those things are more interesting because even though they're long, it, there's still like a lot more they can do with it. They change up the camera angles. They make it the edits a little more purposeful. Whereas this one is just like, here's the circus. Look at and like, here's, you know, huge like crowd shots. And let's go back to like one of the circus rings then back to it wide and back to a crowd shot. And it's just not enough for me. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on especially the circus performances. Cause it is just feels like they set up a camera. They're watching everything and, 
when I was saying the top-down lighting, it was particular for the scenes that are showing the big running circus because you couldn't show any lights because you're showing almost the entire like ground area of the circus. And when they're talking about lighting from down below, I'm assuming that's probably all the trapeze work that they were doing because you would have to light above because you're shooting directly from the ground up at those people. But for me, I don't think you're giving the film enough credit because when we go outside of the circus and it's actually trying to be a film, it's trying to like create scenes and, and create like, actual story like there's really cool filmmaking and really cool cinematography in here and especially in the first like 30 minutes where we're like getting introduced to all of our characters there's really cool walk and talks where like we're moving with the circus there's so much going on in the background and this isn't just like a composite shot like there's actual live really really compelling like cinematography with how much is moving on in the background. The trains are moving in the background. There's all these people carrying different things and moving different things. And at one point a woman gets like picked up and is being carried by an elephant. And yes, we can talk about so much of like the animal abuse and how much animals are used in this film. But when you're not really thinking about that, what I think most of the time you aren't when you're watching film, because who would be, you know, actively thinking about that, you kind of get like lost in the circus and the magic of, of how much they can kind of show you and, and how much these animals can really do. So I don't know. I just don't think you're giving it enough credit for, for some of the aspects that they're actually doing. Yes, I agree with you. Like the actual circus stuff is is so dull and boring because I think that's just the way they had to do it in order to film that. But I just think there's more in this film. And I think this is a film that you could kind of really just not even like turn the audio on. I just throw it on the background and just like watch some of the, like the weird images and the weird scenes and just like drink with your friends and play a board game. You know, it's one of those movies where you don't really need to be invested in the story, but there's like some weird shit always going on in this movie, whether it's good or bad. It's very entertaining. I think I can understand from like a visual standpoint that it does like interesting things visually, but that's also because it's the circus and the circus is yeah, what sure. is what's driving it. But then, there, you know, there are some outside shots that are cool, but then there are also some outside, like when Brad tosses um, Harry or Henry, whatever his name is, because it's just a random character shoehorned in there. <laughs> of like when he throws him out of the circus, that looks like it was filmed in a Blues Clues set. Honestly, <laughs> like it, it was so jarring, and I'm like, they, like why was that green screen? You couldn't, you couldn't just go outside somewhere in Hollywood, just make a mud pit and toss someone out into it, like. <laughs> So, like, that's weird. And then we were just watching a scene when Sebastian comes back and, you know, they go into uh, they go into Brad's trailer and the door is open. So you see stuff going on in the background and that's all composite. Why is that all composite? <laughs> you couldn't again, you couldn't like cut a trailer in half and film facing forward and with like live action going on behind you, which they do at certain parts in the beginning. But then the rest of the movie if there's stuff going on behind them, it's all composite shots and it's all green screen. And so again, it's just so jarring and it's like, that doesn't, it doesn't look right. It looks like mistakes. I mean, it definitely looks like mistakes in a way. You could also argue that the man was ahead of his time. Like if you were to make a movie like this with this many like green screen shots, it would not look nearly as jarring, but because we're so dated at this time and, and what he's trying to do is really not plausible. And, and that's probably on him and, his cinematographer to, and his whoever is working on special effects to kind of 
determine like whether this will look authentic, whether whether this will have verisimilitude, where you actually believe in this and and you can see past some of its flaws. But yeah, you definitely can't see past all of its flaws, and it's really hard not to uh, notice those really jarring composite shots. But in a, in a way, I still find them entertaining. Where right? I don't get frustrated at it. It's more just like wow, I can't believe they were like they saw a couple scenes of this early on, maybe while editing, and they were just like, we have to keep doing this. Like this is nuts and this is weird and wacky and it almost to me like fits the weird tone of a circus in a weird way and that has no like actual plausibility in in terms of how to explain that or explanation how I can explain that but yes it's not really a well-made film in those regards for sure I can definitely agree with that but I find some weird charm in those aspects where it's just so bizarre and unnatural the way they're kind of composite, especially when we have characters who are actors in the film being like composited onto the actual circus. Cause like the lighting is so drastically different and it's so noticeable to kind of see the differences between the background and the foreground. But I still think there's, there's more to this than, than just all the, all the bad green screening. I, I just think overall, like this movie, like the cinematography is like what bothers me the most because Again, it's using kind of a, a cheap way of for 40 minutes of it to be like, well, here's just the circus. Here, here are the circus acts. And like, that's what it's going to make. Yeah, very, I, and like, honestly, it just feels like a Fathom event special. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? it very much is. And maybe that's like one of the best ways to describe it because it is like a, a fiction film thrown into like a Fathom event special showing like a documentary footage. And that's definitely, I think you could do that today and make a film like this. And for me, watching this film, it's two hours and 30 minutes. I think you could cut out 30 minutes of this film and make like a really tight two hour movie about the circus. And like, maybe you can keep some of that voiceover in kind of introducing and describing the circus, but cut out all the crap. We don't need like a 15 minute parade scene to see Mickey Mouse in his crackhead costume. Like we don't need any of that to see all their dirty, disgusting costumes because as a viewer, it's not really entertaining, but putting on my 1952 cap, I just think of being like a little Steven Spielberg, being a little boy and like not being able to go to the circus or not being able to see the circus. And you're not thinking about the ugly green screening in the background, just like we're not thinking about how bad like the CGI was in Airbud. We were just like, wow, look at this animal jump really high with a basketball. And yes, that's dumbing it down and making it simple and in a kid's point of view. And this this was like the highest grossing movie of the year there's like a charm here to it where you can't see this like this is stuff you can't always see and and even for us now especially how bad some of these scenes look with the green screening like this was probably so magical and had such a charm and it really took you to the circus back in the day that I I completely understand why this is the highest grossing movie of that year because it is it has everything that you would possibly want as a viewer back in the day like it's showing you so many cool things that you could never see in your day-to-day life and especially if you're not in one of these major cities you're not going to see the circus so what's your opportunity you're going to go to your local town to see the greatest show on earth and, and see that projected in a theater where you can kind of experience the circus together you know with this audience in a film so did you think about it at all like in in that point of view in the 50s and how you kind of perceive this yeah, I, I certainly do try to think about that with all the movies that we watch and where people's minds were at. And yeah, okay, like this is the, the the highest grossing film of the year. This is like a Marvel movie of that time. This is you know, the big blockbuster. But then I think about also like Gone with the Wind and like that, those special effects. And 
honestly, the, there is a green screen sequence in that, and that is doesn't look as bad as this, you know. So that's why it's very troubling for me to to like to appreciate the technical aspects and and the wow factor of it without being critical of that. It still just like falls flat, and the story falls flat. The dialogue isn't that great. The script writing it. I don't know. This, this, the story isn't enough and there's like too much going on, but it's never fully fleshed out. So it's kind of just, you, you don't like tonally it's all over the place because again, it's a thriller. It's a documentary. It's a love story. It's, you know, action packed. There's, there's tension and then there's bad comic relief and it just doesn't know what to make itself. And I think that's just cause like that was accepted for movies back then like i don't know if if a movie like that came out today would be taken seriously you know it it would it would be looked at as as just pandering to audiences for a wow factor i guess no but i think this is like such a hard film to compare to what would be released nowadays because it's like what could you not see on the internet you know what i mean so it's hard to compare it to that because this is such a different time where you're so limited to what you can have access to even seeing that you know, you couldn't just make a circus film and just find it that interesting and, and have it do that well. And it's funny because we haven't mentioned uh, the greatest show, greatest showman, right? The greatest showman. The, yeah, the greatest showman starring Hugh Jackman, which is <laughs> my apologies, an awful musical, but was one of like the longest consecutively like running box office uh, success story of that year. I think it was like 2019, if I'm. Uh, remembering correctly and, and it was really popular and I know it borrows things from the Ringling Brothers circus and I keep every time I read the greatest show on earth I just sing this is the greatest <laughs> show like and I like oh my god I I really hated that movie so much and that, that is also a movie that is like a bunch of different movies in one but it's funny that you were saying that you could remake this movie and this isn't really the same thing it's a Broadway more like musical full-blown musical showing everything and, and they don't really connect in any other way that it's a circus and they have a similar name but it was just a funny little thing that I wanted to po- point out and kind of talk about something else that's interesting to me just in film in general now that we're getting into the 50s the last film we did was an American in Paris so we didn't really get to see a lot of the 50s iconography that I'm used to the American 50s iconography and and now we're finally in the 50s right and we're in a setting that I feel like we are to the point where we have some sort of connection and this is kind of like a vague understanding and understanding of of this and maybe you'll agree or disagree growing up i have like a pretty strong connection with antiques i, I grew up in like pennsylvania and and they have a, a strong love of like history and antiques and that's a very like iconic you know americana state as well so growing up i was around a lot of things that were like from the 50s and 60s you know like the oak old coke bottles and the coke machine and my grandpa's like both loved collecting things one of them was in world war ii so like i think we're finally getting to the point in these films now where we have this like actual physical tangible connection in a way yes this is 70 years ago we're not close until like the terms of age but i'm getting the sense and now that we have this this color film as well in Technicolor where we're seeing some of the color and we're seeing some of the styles, we're getting to the point where we're like seeing some of the styles that we're kind of used to in America and, and some of the weird antiques that I just love growing up. So I think part of this film also has that connection for me, which I just love the clothing. I love the, the way the trains look. It's like so Americana to me and beautiful and these bright red colors scream America to me. So I, I really love that. And 
I think of at the very end, which will definitely got to focus and talk about the train sequence at the end. I love the interiors of the trains. Like they're really beautiful and cool. And I think this is where we get to see a lot of the Technicolor with the really cool costumes and the fifties Coke machine that's set up in that train. So a rambly, just weird thought. I don't really go into that much personal stuff in relation, but there's like this connection I felt with this film and in the way it kind of represented the fifties, I guess, because, you know, last film in American Paris, we didn't really get that because it was so overly stylized and it felt like it was all just from sets, you know, Hollywood backlots. Yeah. We're definitely going to keep entering that territory as we keep progressing forward. And I think some of that is uh, because of our parents and, you know, our parents were born, I think at least another decade or so later, but just saying the fact that like, that's what, they kind of looked at that's what their parents had growing up you know so i definitely understand that that sentiment of that you see this iconography you, you see americana a lot in the in this movie it, it's definitely there is it enough for me again to really want to sink my teeth into this film eh, not really but I still it's still like fun and, and fascinating to look at and to see the progression forward of, of time and in the way things are stylized and, and antiques. I, I, it's definitely interesting that and fun that, that we are reaching that point with the movies that we're watching. I want to talk a little bit more about the great Sebastian, right? So he's an important, pretty important character for our plot here. He's like the star studded guy comes in, takes over the spot. He's flirting with Holly and we get to a point where he's continually to try to flirt with her. She thinks she has this chance with Brad and he, he gets to the point where he's like, I got to one up her. I got to do this crazy trick and she'll madly fall in love with me. Right. And it's like such a middle school point of view. Like, damn, if only I had, you know, like if I got this cool kick on the soccer field and like Stacy saw that kick, like Stacy's going to be mine. Like it's, <laughs> it's such a childhood point of view of like how to win over a woman. It's like, I'm going to do this cool trapeze flip and then. Holly's going to love me. She's going to marry me because of that. And that's basically how deep our characters are. And you might be surprised because I'm always the one who's just like, I love characters and I love story. And I, I really want to have compelling stories and characters. But I think for what this film was going for, I just knew that that's not what their real goal was. And to, to say that's okay is also to kind of go against what I've always said. But this film just feels larger than just trying to tell a story. And I think The Great Sebastian is a part of that story where we see his his final performance where he's really trying to show off for Holly and he's doing this like flip through a ring hoop and then he's supposed to grab onto the other rope basically on the other side. And what I <laughs> laughed out loud because a lot of these trapeze scenes are, are really dramatic and really tense. Like you really don't know if they're going to fall or not. Characters keep saying how dangerous it is. And, you know, we have the net, but at points they remove the net and that's exactly what the great Sebastian does. And he falls down magnificently as he misses catching the rope and he just falls all the way down but here we have another composite i think i mean it is so bizarre looking that this is what i'm trying to explain with the the issues and the failures of the green screening and issues like that almost add to the entertainment of this movie and this is the perfect example of it because he falls in what is supposed to be the ground right really dangerous ground because he's like 30 feet up but you can see that he's falling into a net that is like in the ground because of the way they like composited it right like yeah is that how you could describe it, it it looks like that they had maybe like a cushion underneath and that the okay. net kind of like caught him to and brought him cushion. down yeah, yeah. In, into a into a cushion and 
it the and I find it funny because it feels like if they just shaved off that one second. Yes, it's before, one second off. Right? It's like one second, and it wouldn't seem as goofy. It would, it would seem no. like he actually did hit the ground with like an impact boom, like yeah. a sound effect. Because it's like almost quiet when he falls, so it's like supposed to be like really dramatic, and intense. Yeah, and it's kind of unbelievable that you would survive something like that. He falls. <laughs> straight onto his arm and neck and he's literally <laughs> bleeding from the mouth <laughs> and that's what really take again takes you out because it's uh, like that that's not real uh, he, he so definitely would have died it is so funny though and it's something that I'm, i don't even get angry at because i'm like that was amazing i'm so glad i got to see that it is i don't know how to describe it honestly guys you guys need to go out and watch this movie just for this scene alone because i don't know what they did to make to make it look this way i don't know if they like in, instead of a green screen background did they like paint the cushion and the like the net green I, and I then try so. to composite it yeah, out because that's kind so. of what it looked like and it was it is so jarring and weird and it's worth watching just for this scene alone so the great sebastian gets severely injured right because he falls he's gone for a while he he gets to walk out on his own you know he gets that man strength to, to get up and to walk out and be the man that he wants to be so he's gone for the film for a while, and later on he comes back. He seems happy. He seems like he's coming back to kind of join the circus again. But he reveals to Brad that, Brad, I'm going to this other circus because they recruited me. Brad's getting all pissy just because that's all he does in this movie is just be angry and pissed off. And he's basically getting angry, and I think it's either him or Holly who rips off his coat to reveal that. Oh, uh, Brad. Yeah, Brad rips it off. Yeah, that he has like a crippled hand, which is it's obviously very offensive now to just kind of like show an actor just like faking this injury but like i, I guess it's of the time you, you know you're not going to find someone and you have to show that like before and after transition it is kind of goofy i don't know how you took this reveal because it is one of like the most dramatic reveals that we have in the movie how did you feel about this yeah it, it's pretty goofy with, with how it just is revealed and then it's like oh like that's all you suffered was just a crippled hand and it just feels very like it doesn't match up with with what's going on i don't i don't mean maybe i'm just i don't think it was like that offensive for him to to be portrayed like that but maybe i'm not picking up on something there no i don't really think it's offensive i mean if you're showing an injury in film i think it's you just have to kind of portray what you think this injury would look like and i'm sure they base it off of like other injuries of like really mangled up broken arms or something like that i don't know something really disturbing people who have survived trapeze stunts like yeah it could just be like falls like large falls and it's just really goofy looking because the way he's holding it is like really clenched up to his side and it's like facing towards like the camera it's like villain holding it yeah exactly it makes him look like really villainous come here (laughs) really villainous and goofy but then at the same time his character has this like kind of charming change to him he he's not as like confidence so he loses that side of him becomes kind of softer and and sweeter in general and he begins just to be like a helping hand around the circus which i found that to be kind of an interesting change and take on his character but moving forward into the story because i'm sure there's not too much (laughs) too much else that you want to hit on on this i mean like i can't break down like circus performances and no because a lot of it is just those performances right and i think to again tie back to the beginning when we were talking about animal abuse is like you watch all these performances you watch these elephant tricks happening and you're just like no god please just stop because you know those elephants were abused to like put their you know to go on their two legs and put their other front two legs on the elephant in front of it's like a walk in a circle you know these horses were abused because of how they had to 
Uh, they also had to stay on their two legs. You know that a dog had to jump onto a moving horse as it's running around in a circle. And it just feel it's so abusive that it's it takes you right out. And it's just in your face for so long. It is really in your face. But like we were kind of trying to describe, but it's really hard. There's that dual nature of like also still being entertained by some of these aspects. And I think one of the most like engage in, in entertaining moments while using the animals is a scene where Angel, one of our female characters, who has this kind of another love triangle with Brad, is basically having a foot because Klaus, this kind of villainous guy who's in love with her, but she's falling in love with Brad. He's angry at that. So in a performance that they have together in front of everyone, live in front of the circus, he's basically forcing this elephant to like press its foot down on her head. Which is like extremely dark for this movie. Like it is definitely like the darkest moment I think in this entire film, and it kind of hits on on an aspect of this film that like this could have went this direction. It could have showed you more into how like dark and, and kind of gothic this could be, but it doesn't. But at that moment, I was I found it really tense. It's disturbing. Like she realizes what's happening, and he's like clearly trying to antagonize her and almost kill her like he's not afraid to like fully make this elephant crush her head and I found that to be a really engaging dramatic scene for sure even though we don't really care too much about these characters I thought it was a really interesting premise and something that I don't think I've ever seen before well it's funny you say we don't care about her because I actually think that Gloria Graham plays Angel like she was actually one of the better performances of yeah. the film yeah I, would, I so, wouldn't disagree with that yeah so so that scene is really tense and and she actually had to perform that stunt. And it's actually one of the only times that Brad shows some kind of emotion and some <laughs> yes. kind of like initiative to be like, no, you can't do that. And Klaus, you get out of here. I'm trying. That's my Char- Charlton Heston impression. Yeah, you amazing. get out of here. Okay. <laughs> I shat on him for a lot. And I do think this is an awful performance. Oh, it's so and bad. I, I do stand by. This is probably the worst like act main acting performance that we've gotten so far. But man, Charlton Heston's voice is just amazing and, but it makes it even more frustrating because i'm yeah. like dude what do you what you're saying is so dumb and your line de- delivery is so bad at times but your voice is like incredible like it is so iconic almost. i think another thing to remember is this is also one of his first movies well there you go i mean that explains like it. for why but also it's like but then only nine like 1959 he wins best actor for ben hur so this is seven years later he goes from what we think is a shitty performance to what people call one of the better acting performances, you know, ever done. So it, I don't know. Well, it could be DeMille, like, you know, his just direction and you kind of describe, tell me a little bit about the way he kind of directed. I, you were telling me a little bit about this beforehand, but yeah. So people kind of look at DeMille and kind of say, okay, you know, he was a great silent film uh, director and that he was able to transition. And I think that people give him a lot of credit for how, he was able to survive. Obviously, he's iconic from Sunset Boulevard. You know, I'm ready for my close-up now, Mr. DeMille. He's definitely ingratiated. I mean, he was part of the founding of the Academy. So he he's definitely there in terms of, like, royalty and of, of filmmaking. But then there are certain... But then there are some, like, directors who look back and, like, well, he's kind of just more for the show and he's kind of more just to have the wow factor rather than the actual... What some might say is the most important stuff, which is the story. And I kind of agree with that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shitting on DeMille at all. Like, I think I love the 10 commandments. I think that his like biblical epics are, are certainly fascinating. And I, I give a lot of props to that, but I also think that his way he directs actors is kind of, you know, it's a little shaky and uh, you know, I'm just reading, researching about him. 
was that he rarely did give direction to actors. He preferred to quote office direct where he would work with actors in his office, going, going over characters and reading through scripts in the office rather than on set, which I, is certainly different approach for how you should do it. And uh, so he's definitely more for the wow factor of for things, but he's not more, he's not one of those like directors like an Ilya Kazan who's come, who's coming up at this time or Fred Zinneman where they're so focused on the character. They're so focused on the story that that is what should drive a movie where Demille is just like, nah, let's just have big crazy sets, a crazy chain sequence, have the circus going. Yeah. He's looking for like as much kind of visceral action and effects. And it's almost like he's trying to like push the boundaries of cinema in this film in a way that isn't always good, obviously, as we've described, but he doesn't really have that particular style like a Capra or Ford or, or some of these directors that we've kind of hit on and that we've seen and, and seen some of their films and their catalog that you can see the trends in some of the stories and the storytelling and especially some of their auteur style of filmmaking. Well, he definitely has a style, though, which is just this grandiose style of filmmaking. Sure, like, I to think you it, could say that. To yeah. make it big, to make it grand, it's like a circus. You know, it, it's there for the entertainment rather than for the substance and the art form. And yeah, you know, and, and I'm not, it's not trying to be critical of DeMille, but it, that when this is the movie that wins best picture, this is the one the Academy was like, we got to give it to this guy. It's a little shaky. It's a little questionable. Well, there's nothing bigger and explosive in this film than its climax. When it comes to all of our characters on a train, uh, we have this kind of pseudo villain that's become our villain out of nowhere. And he wants to basically steal all the money from the train cars. He makes a mistake because he's in love with Angel and he makes a mistake thinking it's one car instead of the other. And he ends up getting crushed <laughs> in, in his car. Him and uh, Klaus and Henry in their car get destroyed by the train, which I thought was hysterical. It yeah, is, it's pretty it funny. is one of those uh, shots again that is like, oh my God, everyone who loves movies needs to see this shot. It is crazy and bonkers. And then we have hands down the greatest train crash sequence I have ever seen in my entire life and this is again that balance of the awful animal abuse and I think we really see it here because we see every cart basically of this train crash and crumble and so many different angles of the models of this train flipping and turning and and we see the animal carts of the train kind of crash and break open and live action we're seeing these carts like explode and like lions or jaguars like climb out of it and I don't understand how the hell they did any of this like I read into it and they were using models trying to like show this destruction but when it comes to them actually blowing up these sets and animals coming out of like talking about animal abuse there's not more clear animal abuse directly on screen than like seeing explosions right in front of animals and then having to like crawl through the destruction of those explosions yeah they have like a train car fall you can it, maybe it was on like a wire like a foot above the ground but it still had to fall and still have live animals inside it to then crawl out of it, it that's disturbing they have live animals on set probably going through like walking over rubble and it's that's not safe conditions for a lion <laughs> to be walking around with other people around as well. So it, it just seems very unsafe it and that is clear animal abuse, which is how they how they did use the animals in this train sequence. But then you look at the other side of it and you look at the you know, the people that were in it and kind of it looks almost like a ride, like a stunt ride. You would see it like Universal Studios to show off like this is how stunt work is done. This is how crazy. Oh, yeah. Like sequences are in like destruction sequences are done. 
And like that's fascinating to look at. It's kind of like impressive for the time. Kind of impressive. Kind of. It is so impressive. Are you kidding me? This train sequence is unreal. I was literally like gasping at this scene because of how insane this is. It is so cool. I just like want to play this on a loop. Like obviously all the animal shit is so bad. It's disgusting. But like what they do here is like unbelievable. I like couldn't believe that they did this. I feel like such a Brad right now because I'm just like, okay. And it's so funny because we started this talking about Spielberg, his connection to this and what would be the second best train sequence crash sequence of all time. Super eight, which is produced by Spielberg directed by JJ Abrams. And it's just unbelievable how similar they are. And I can't see this and not think that Spielberg directly had his hand here to like, recreate this iconic moment for him and this iconic film for him to then be like let's do it let's see what this modern era can do and advance in our technology with cgi and let's show off this crazy super 8 explosion of of a train sequence so i really had to stop and talk about this sequence because i think it's again one of these moments that i just i was really in awe of and i was literally saying out, out loud like wow like i can't believe that they did this and they like made such a crazy train crash sequence. I was really, really blown away by this. I'm such a curmudgeon because I'm just like, well, the one in Boba Fett, Book of Boba Fett was kind of cooler. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I'm so, I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel, I don't know why I didn't feel like, oh my God. I was kind of just like, oh yeah, look at that model train that they just blew up. <laughs> look at it. Like it's, it's cool. It's definitely cool and it's fascinating because you appreciate the effort that goes into it. You you appreciate that, that they thought of this and they and the creativity to make it, to pull it off. But then at the same time, it's on a model train set. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. That's a toy car getting flipped up into the air. Yeah, of so course. You know that it's not a real train, right? right? No, I, I, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know it wasn't a real train, but I also, I, I it seems and this is, I think, just a fault of of a modern viewer watching these old movies. I'm so you know, inundated with cool f- special effects and CGI, and I've I've seen cool explosions. And I think of I think of Star Wars. I think of Marvel movies. I think of you know, like the Titanic sinking. You know, you think of all these other big things that happen, and even stuff that happens only a few years later. And you're kind of just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I couldn't disagree with more. I, I'm so about having a real tangible thing that you're recording and filming. And I think this is such an issue with a lot of just films these days is the over-reliance and abundance of using CGI for everything. And I think you could even look at this film as as doing that as well. Like kind of the start of doing that with the excessive use of green screening. Probably out of necessity and not getting the shot or having the time for certain scenes that they wanted to. But when it comes to like a sequence like this... Even today, I would rather have uh, some crazy train or cart action sequence done with model cars than a CGI car. And no matter how realistic it looks, there's like this weird sense that we know what we're looking at is not real. And I don't think you can ever get away from that. I think I think what just pop, what popped in my head, because all I kept thinking about was the moments in the train crash where it just starts piling up and piling up. And, and you're like, I don't want you want like model cars. You don't want CGI. And I'm like blues brothers, <laughs> which the, is a great with, with the police cars, just cars piling yeah. on top of one another. And that's like, that's cool because I get, again, you can use cars. You can't use a train. So I get to the idea of a train 
being it. But still, at the same time, it, it it's cool, but it's a little campy and goofy, and it's like okay, it like a, it fun, is, yeah. but also okay. I've seen better. It's goofy because we know like they're they cut to the characters that are inside, and we kind of see their point of view and like how they're taking this crash and it's wild and insane. And the last reference to a random train sequence that I will reference just cause I love this movie and it's an interesting little tidbit is unbreakable an M night Shyamalan movie where it opens up with our lead character, uh, riding in a train. Right. And it's supposed to be this epic, crazy train crash. Uh, and originally in this film, he was going to show off this train crash. It was going to be insane. It was going to be all CGI. It was going to be this huge, wild, ex- expensive extravagant scene that I think they worked on and and almost finished and then he realized that it didn't work for the film and he just did a quick fade to white right as the train sequence is is about to happen right as the crash is about to happen so just a fun little random tidbit but anyway Ben is there anything else that you want to hit on the greatest showman I mean we talked about the ending after the train sequence Brad is pinned down he gets blood from Sebastian and it's goofy and dumb and uh, buttons a clown doesn't really get that satisfying of an ending is there anything else you want to hit on of the ending or anything else with the greatest showman i just started like greatest up. show on earth i just said the greatest <laughs> i just started looking up like train sequences and movies that came up in imdb articles so greatest show on earth is number seven uh but it, it's ranked uh below or rank yeah ranked below back to the future part three a movie called Great silver one. streak speed source code super eight and number one is the fugitive which uh, it's interesting that the fugitive is. It's a good train crash. Yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. So it, I don't know. That just made me go pop my head. But in terms of other things, I I want to talk about there. You know, there's not too much more. I th- there's some off-color jokes that they make in this movie, and uh, there's a line where Brad's like, "Okay, we have to operate to not be in the black." And then someone says, "You mean we all have to play right. in blackface?" blackface. That's oof. That, that that's pretty. That's like the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, too. yeah. I know. It, it's really bad. Uh, there's a, I love this line from Sebastian to buttons. Why are you in makeup? Why are you the great Sebastian? I oh thought, my God. <laughs> I was, love that line. That, that was a good quippy line. I also loved his line where he says clowns are funny people. They only love one. <laughs> and it also tells you about his character. Yeah. He did only love one. So he had to kill his fucking you know, life. Let's just, let's just end and talk about buttons again. <laughs> okay. Because that part, stew. like, like that part was so fucking cool. And like there, if you edited the movie and you included like the be a jumping jack scene, like that was like really fun. The, you know, it's Holly and, and Buttons jumping on a trampoline. They're singing, like, be a jumping jack to be loose and have fun in life. Like, that's really cool. The scene where, again, like, he, he meets up again with his mother. Like, so beautiful and sentimental. When he saves, you know, Brad at the end. Like, just, it just feels like that there's this whole other movie in there. Like, just Buttons a clown. And even if that was included, even if the train sequence is included in that movie. Like, damn, that would have been a great movie. But shit, I get fucking inundated with, with <laughs> this dumb love triangle. That's just like, you know, Charlton Heston, just go to Gloria Graham. She's the more beautiful woman. She has way more care than fucking Betty Hutton, who I wrote down. <laughs> you know, I'm just going through my notes. She sounded like a fucking Sesame Street character to me. Like, I <laughs> I couldn't pick that out. I think she sounds most like Ernie is the one that comes to mind. And just that acting is like one of the worst, I think, we'll, we will see in the best picture journey that we're on. I just, oh, that really frustrated me. Charlton Heston, you really bring it back up in Ben Hurt. But goddamn, are you bad in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so buttons the clown a plus everything else fucking f <laughs> well how do you feel about i mean i like his conclusion of him using his skills as a doctor to save brad and 
it's so ridiculous that you know this is rare blood type that he has that the great Sebastian has in and like I don't even know my blood type and that's like them coming together and that's like them having their arc is like solving their beef even though like their beef was so artificial and just like not there to begin with I just like wish we had a little bit more from James Stewart before the movie ends with like celebrating the circus at the end but I guess we at least complete his arc. With oh, we didn't even get to there. that part with the song they sing at the end, which one Betty Hutton cannot sing. <laughs> and two, the audio is just blown out. It is oh. the sound in this movie is so bad. It's so bad. It's like blown out. It it sounds like they that just a broken microphone they just stuck in Betty Hutton's face as she's singing outside. There's just no control. It's just Demille being like, just get her to sing. She'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. All the pretty colors will make it good. <laughs> It's a guerrilla filmmaking boy. Yeah, some gorilla. What you're talking about. Yeah. So I think we've we squeezed enough juice, but I think now we should get into the 25th Academy Awards. These 25 years have cast some long shadows, but shadows are never seen unless the sun is shining. Our film memories would mean far less for Hollywood not so brightly aglow tonight. The 25th Academy Awards were held on March 19, 1953 at the RKO Pantages Theaters in Hollywood, California, as well as NBC International Theater in New York City. This is the first year in which the Academy Awards ceremony was televised in black and white on NBC with Bob Hope as our host and Conrad Nagel as our host in New York City. That's good to know. I didn't know NBC was the first one to televise this. Yeah, and it's interesting because, for reference, this show has had an estimated television audience of 40 million at the time. This is the first televised program of the Academy Awards. And for reference, last year for the 93rd Academy Awards, we had 10 million, 10.4 million people watching, which was actually a 56% drop down from the previous year in 2020, where we had 23.6 million viewers. So this is also just crazy to see just how many people are watching this television is still very new in our last episode you can hear uh, our master of ceremonies talk a little bit about television and it's, it's kind of creeping in on cinema and whether people are kind of afraid of that so that's interesting we're seeing them almost combine and showing this on tv but 40 million people can you imagine oh my god man i mean 100 million people just watched the super bowl and also yeah, the, but those are just those are just guesstimates of of uh of how many people actually watch, which is, you know, peel the curtain a little bit. TV ratings are just all estimates and based off of some statistical data off of an average of people. So you see ratings, it's not, sometimes doesn't equate. It also doesn't factor in streaming. And, and when you, which is another thing that's frustrating. Like I know Oscar viewership is down and people want to be down the Oscars. People are still interested in the Oscars. People are still watching the Oscars. It may be through an illegal stream. They may be watching it through another streaming service that doesn't count for you know for, for like that viewing and, and how it's rated so um that but what i'm basically saying is watch the oscars this year it's important <laughs> please watch to me it's just sad because i'm like if you do you imagine if like double and that's coming from 2020 if double the people watch this show meaning like double the amount of people actually cared about film and, and film I, in hollywood or film is as a medium like i don't know i think people care about it but i think and i saw someone i forget where i saw this but someone wrote it kind of well that was it used to be an event because we used to see these celebrities as people for the mm-hmm. like that was the only time of the year you got to watch them. Actually see them, yeah. Yeah, but now we have Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, 
YouTube, every possible way to see celebrities as as quote people, even though they are entertaining us with everything they do, even if you know that or not. Uh, they, you know, so it doesn't. So the Oscars seem so just like, oh, but I know that who that person is. I know I I just saw their them with their dress on twenty minutes ago yeah. at their home because they post on Instagram. No, it, it's very true. I think that shows just the huge shift that we have. There's no like. And that's what they always try in these modern era of the Oscars. They're trying to like make it bigger or like do some big selfie to show that we're all just like you and and make it larger than just the show awarding people for, you know, being a good actor or actress. So it's I understand both sides of it. I understand that side and and seeing that we don't really get that insider peek. But I think that's also why a lot of actors shouldn't be on social media and shouldn't be you know risking their career for a better word to just like say stupid shit on social media just because they think they need to. I think you look at like Leonardo DiCaprio who has like no social media presence as a great example of why people go out to see his films, why they want to see it. I'm not, he's a great actor too, but I think that's part of it, part of his process and part of him not really being very public otherwise. This year also marked the first time in Oscars history that all top six prizes, best picture, director, actor, actress, supporting actor and supporting actress went to six different films. This would not occur again until 1956, and then 49 years later in 2005. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award this year was given to Cecile B. DeMille. So certainly fascinating that DeMille is getting the Thalberg Award. Like we, we've talked about previously about how this could be a precursor to someone winning Best Picture. But also, to me, it can signify that we're not going to give you Best Director because we're giving you this other prestigious award. Yeah, any sign, do you think that uh, there's like some feeling that they think that there's no chance that you know his film's going to win, The Greatest Show on Earth is going to win, they feel like maybe High Noon's going to take it, and that's why they're kind of giving him this award for what no, he built? No, I actually think the opposite. I think it's like this is like, oh, we're going to give you Best Picture because we're trying to celebrate you and... We'll get there uh, when we get to uh, when we get to best picture because there's definitely some interesting stuff to note about that. But I th- I kind of think the opposite. I th- I don't I think Hainu was kind of set up for failure um, for that award, and we will get there. We will talk about that when we get there. Best foreign language film goes to France for Forbidden Games. Best special effects went to Plymouth Adventures, a Technicolor film about a fictionalized version of the Pilgrim's Voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to North America aboard the Mayflower. So your big old special effect train <laughs> sequence was not good enough for the Academy, John. <laughs> That's ridiculous. I, but what is up with the best special effects? Just the weirdest movies that get thrown in here. I love it. Like Who, who thought that would be a good idea? I, I don't know. Maybe we'll watch it sometime. The Academy Honorary Awards go to George Alfred Mitchell for the design and development of the camera which bears his name and for his continued and dominant presence in the field of cinematography. Joseph M. Schneck for long and distinguished service to motion picture industry. Marion C. Cooper for his many innovations and contributions to the art of motion pictures. Harold Lloyd for simply being a master comedian and a good citizen. And Bob Hope for his contribution to the laughter of the world his service to the motion picture industry, and his devotion to the American premise. Best film editing went to Elmo Williams and Harry W. Gerstad for High Noon. This is Williams' first and only career win and Gerstad's second win out of two career nominations. It's just to note, High Noon it was listed 
as the 54th best edited film of all time in a 2012 survey of members of the Motion Picture Editors Guild. Yeah, we'll talk more about High Noon, but man, what a snappy, quick hour and a half. Just like fucking gut punch of a movie. Oh, I yeah, love it that keeps movie. it tense. Keeps it really tense. It's amazing editing. So well-deserved and worthy. Best costume design color goes to Marcel Vertiz for Moulin Rouge. This is Vertiz's first of two Oscars of the evening. Best costume design black and white went to Helen Rose for The Bad and the Beautiful. This is Rose's first of two career Oscars. She would go on to win in the same category for the 1955 film I'll Cry Tomorrow. Best Cinematography Color goes to Winton C. Hoke and Archie Stout for The Quiet Man. This is Hoke's third and final career Oscar in this category, and he's one of ten cinematographers to win three or more Academy Awards. Hoke accomplished this as well in only three nominations. Stout was a second unit cinematographer for the film and was only the second unit cinematographer to win an Oscar. I'm glad he got nominated. I wonder how that kind of finagling happened that's that's great to see that the second unit got also yeah, carried over the second second unit that that can definitely be a tongue twister <laughs> say that five times fast best cinematography black and white went to robert surtees for the bad and the beautiful this is surtees second of three academy awards making him another one of the 10 cinematographers to win three or more oscars but he did this in 15 total nominations and he won his final academy award for the 1959 best picture winner Ben Hur. 15 total nominations. Wow. Best Art Direction Color goes to Art Direction by Paul Sheriff. Set Direction by Marcel Vertiz for Moulin Rouge. This is Sheriff's first and only Oscar win and Vertiz's second Academy Award of the evening after previously have just winning Best Costume Design. Best Art Direction Black and White went to The Bad and the Beautiful. Art Direction by Cedric Gibbons and Edward Carfano. Set direction by Edwin B. Willis and F. Gleason. This is Gibbons' ninth of 11 career Oscars. He won, previous, he won in the previous year for An American in Paris. Willis' sixth of eight career Oscars. Carfano's first of three Oscars. And Gleason's second of four career Oscars. So total, these four would win 26 Academy Awards between them. Best sound recording goes to London Film Sound Department for Breaking the Sound Barrier. Best song goes to... The Ballad of High Noon, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, from High Noon, music by Dimitri Tiomkin, and lyrics by Ned Washington. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, on this our wedding day. Do not forsake me, oh my darling, wait, wait long. This is Tiomkin's first of four career Oscars and first of this ceremony as Washington's second Oscar after previously winning four when he wished upon a star from Pinocchio. And this can also be heard in a potential Best Picture winner, Belfast. This is one of one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite movie songs, one of, I think, the most pr- appropriately used songs in a movie. I, it's It's pretty great. Um, so I, I I love that this is a best song winner. Yeah, I love it. it. It perfectly kind of summarizes the film and our beginning of the marriage and then ending to their honeymoon. What a what a great song to kind of tie the film in a bow. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Alfred Newman for With a Song in My Heart. This is Newman's sixth of nine career Oscar wins. 
Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Dmitry Tiomkin for High Noon. Tiomkin was the second composer to receive two Oscars, score and song, for the same dramatic film. The first was Lee Harline, who won Best Original Score for Disney's Pinocchio and Best Song for When He Wished Upon a Star. Ned Washington wrote its lyrics as he did for Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling from High Noon. So again, like another great win for High Noon. Really fits into, I think, the tone of the movie. So I think it's actually kind of surprising that two of the technical awards that it did win besides editing was song and score. Best live action short subject to real goes to Waterbirds. Best live action short subject one real goes to Light in the Window. Best documentary short subject goes to Neighbors. Best documentary feature goes to The Sea Around Us. Best short subject cartoon goes to Johan Mouse. Best story goes to The Greatest Show on Earth, Frederick M. Frank, Theodore St. John, and Frank Cavett. This is the second Best Picture winner to win the award following Going My Way in 1944. This is the only career wins for Frank, St. John, and Cavett. So, you know what? <laughs> you know what? I got to give it credit. I got to give Best Damn, Story credit for, for, for the only time because I think it gets it right. This movie, great. Brilliant idea. We're going to talk about the circus. It's a shitty script and shitty end result. So you know what? <laughs> Take it, best story. You get you get this one for the greatest show on earth. It's so funny because I find that this is only the second best picture winner to have this happen, and it was previously going my way, which you know we enjoyed as a film as a as a vehicle for Bing Crosby. But it is well, that's the idea is hey vehicle for Bing Crosby exactly. But it's also like a story that we were like this is barely a movie. Like this is barely has a story. Like it is so thin and loose. And a weird connection between the two. It's one of like only a handful that we felt was barely even a film in and, general. And Bing Crosby was in both. That's so true. We didn't talk about him being in the crowd, yeah. just cheesing, eating popcorn. It's just a random cameo. Yeah, there's a lot of cameos in this film. Best screenplay goes to T.E.B. Clark for The Lavender Hill Mob, Clark's only career win for best screenplay. And it is one of 15 films listed in the category art on the Vatican film list. That list, I kind of just wanted to take a second because it's really fascinating what films are considered art. It's it's split up. It's split into religion, values, and art. So in art, you have Citizen Kane, Eight and a Half, Fantasia, Grand Illusion, La Strada, The Lavender Hill Mob, The Leopard, Little Women from 1933, Metropolis, Modern Times, Napoleon, Nosferatu, Stagecoach, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and The Wizard of Oz. So movie like to include 2001 a space odyssey on the Vatican's list of films <laughs> is fascinating. I just love that like after 1963 that's our latest latest film here or 1968 a space odyssey. Well, uh, um, well that's for art. Yeah, just for art. Just for the art, yeah. They're like that's the last film that was that was made yeah, to for, fit under our art category. Best story in screenplay goes to Charles Schnee. From Tribute to a Bad Man by George Bradshaw for the film The Bad and the Beautiful. This is Schnee's first and only career win. The Bad and the Beautiful won five Academy Awards this evening out of six nominations, which is a record for the most awards for a movie that was not nominated for Best Picture or for Best Director. Best Supporting Actress goes to Gloria Graham for The Bad and the Beautiful as Rosemary Bartlow. This is Graham's first and only career win, and she was previously nominated in this category for Crossfire in 1947. While Graham had a sporting role in The Greatest Show on Earth as Angel, 
She is probably best remembered for her role as Violet Bick in It's a Wonderful Life. Graham, only appearing for a little over nine minutes on screen for The Bad and the Beautiful, long held the record for the shortest performance on screen to win an acting Oscar until Patrice Strait won for Network in 1976 with a five-minute performance. So we talked a little bit about her performance. You kind of praised her a little bit. Is there anything you want to add to Grant's performance as Angel here? I just feel like she doesn't get enough to kind of be pulled into the story for me. No, she definitely doesn't get enough. Um, It seems upon looking up uh, from this year that her dual performance from The Greatest Show on Earth and The Bad and the Beautiful was kind of like, I'm not equating it to the reconnaissance, but kind of this whole idea like, hey, here are two productions that you're a part of and this is what's going to prop me up and um, so that so that's definitely seems to have been a factor for why she won, but she won specifically for the bad and the beautiful and not for the greatest show on earth. And we also have Gene Hagen from Singing in the Rain, which is a huge film nominated this year. And it's so bizarre that we have last year winner being an American in Paris is big MGM picture. And then the following year, we have what is known to be one of the most, if not the most iconic MGM musical which is singing in the rain so and surprisingly snubbed for the most part yep all across the board yeah I, I think people would say this and high noon are kind of the back and forth biggest snubs of the night yeah well m- we'll get the best picture <laughs> best supporting actor went to anthony quinn for viva zapata as euphemio zapata this is quinn's first of two career oscars he would go on to win for best supporting actor in lust for life from 1956 he's the first mexican-american to win an Academy Award. Best Actress goes to Shirley Booth for Comeback, Little Sheba as Lola Delaney. This is Booth's first win and only career nomination. Comeback, Little Sheba was her film debut role after previously being in the role on Broadway. In 1962, Booth became the fourth actor to accomplish the triple crown of acting, an Oscar, Tony, and Emmy. While she found stardom easily on film, she would only go on to make four more films. Best Actor goes to Gary Cooper for High Noon as Marshall Will Kane. This is Cooper's second win out of five total nominations. He received five nominations for Best Actor and an honorary Oscar in 1961 for his many memorable screen performances and the international recognition he, as an individual, has gained for the motion picture industry. Gary Cooper, it goes beyond words what we can really say about him. He is phenomenal. Um, as one of my uh, favorite characters, Tony Soprano, say the strong, <laughs> silent type. The strong, silent Why type. Why can anyone right. be like Gary Cooper as Marshall Will Kane? I mean, what an interesting performance! Like it, we get this really tough, stern character who's like soft. Like he has a soft core that he like, kind of refused to show anyone other than his wife and his recent wife. And you know, it's such a compelling character as well and I think Cooper handles this with so much grace where you can see the pain and it's a man going through his day basically knowing that he's going to die and it's just such a fascinating tale and then to have someone who's as confident and has as much swagger as Gary Cooper like come on amazing yeah it's definitely one of those you know classic great performances and feels very right that that it does win Best Actor, so... I mean, look at the stacked nominations he's with, too, with Marlon oh, Brando, yeah. Kirk Douglas, Jose Fierre, and Alex Guinness. Like, come on. Unreal. Yeah, like, that I, may be the biggest, like, best lineup that we've seen. Yeah, I think Kirk Douglas is the only one who doesn't win an Oscar. Out of the, did Kirk Douglas win an Oscar? I don't think he won an Oscar. You would know, boy. I, I would know. Um, so I'm, 
I'm going to feel like an idiot if I, if I just don't look <laughs> this up quickly because I'm pretty sure. But, yeah, it's a pretty stacked line, lineup for, for actors. We rarely get to see that. It's enjoyable, I think, for a lot of us when we do get to see that. Um, you know, so, oh, okay. So there is no uh, Oscar win for, uh, for uh, Kirk Douglas. So I, I feel good that I, I said it off the top of my head and, uh, and I was right about that. Best director goes to... John Ford for The Quiet Man. This is Ford's fourth Academy Award for Best Director out of six nominations. It was a record for the director and for the Academy, but it would be Ford's last nomination and Oscar win. Ben, have you seen The Quiet Man? No, I I have not, unfortunately, uh, at this moment. But who knows, maybe by tomorrow I will have watched (laughs) The Quiet Man. Uh, But what a stacked year. So you have Ford winning. You have Joseph L. Mankiewicz, you have Cecile B. DeMille, you have Fred Zinneman, and you have John Huston, all nominated. Like, that's a stacked line, a very straight white male stacked lineup, but still a stacked lineup for uh, for directors. Definitely. I definitely recommend A Quiet Man. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful movie. I think it's one of John Wayne's best performances. I think it's a kind of turn on his character, trying to reveal, much like Gary Cooper, a softer side to this stern, stubborn man. And it is a beautiful, beautiful film when it comes to the color, talking about the beautiful green hills and valleys. And what a great performance by our boy John Wayne. Five outstanding motion pictures have been nominated as the best films of 1952. Here to make the presentation is a lady so well known as a founder of the Academy, so well beloved as America's sweetheart, Academy Award winner, Miss Mary Pickford. How do you like our birthday cake? How does it look? Wonderful, Bob. Simply wonderful. Well, it should. You poured the batter for that cake. You put the first icing on it. And now it's up to you to light up this year's candle, the 25th, by announcing the best picture of the year. Those nominated for the best motion picture are The Greatest Show on Earth, DeMille Paramount, Cecil B. DeMille, High Noon Kramer, United Artists, Stanley Kramer, Ivanhoe, MGM, Pandra S. Berman, Moulin Rouge, Romulus, United Artists, The Quiet Man, Argosy, Republic, John Ford, and Marion C. Cooper. The winner is Cecil B. DeMille. When the Best Picture Award was was presented this year was presented by Mary Pickford, one of the founders and originators of the Academy Motion Pictures of Arts and Sciences. So this is not only the first time the Academy Awards was televised, it was also Pickford's first television appearance. So starting out as the big Hollywood star, finally being seen on TV. This is, you know, we're 25 years into the Oscars. It feels very celebratory to, for Pickford to give it to DeMille uh, as like the originators of this uh, motion picture um, Academy. It has also been suggested that the film won Best Picture by default because many members of the Academy were reluctant to vote for the anti-Joseph McCarthy Western High Noon, whose screenwriter Carl Foreman had just been blacklisted. However, those who decry the film's Best Picture win have failed to notice that it also won three of its Golden Globe Award nominations, Best Picture for Drama, Best Director, and Best Cinematography Color. So Golden Globe Awards was a precursor to this, so 
maybe some could feel that Greatest Show on Earth was that momentum bringing it forward, that the box office glamour of it was a reason for it winning Best Picture. And also some people think it's just because that Demil just after a, a very successful career just had to get an Oscar at some point. So here you go, Demille. Here's your Lifetime Achievement Award, which the Oscars love to do instead of rewarding it to, which is now very controversial. And for many people today, for The Greatest Show on Earth, because they feel like a film like High Noon should have won, and they feel like a movie that isn't nominated there for Singing in the Rain, which no nomination for picture, no nomination for director, no nomination for actor, no music, no like nothing like to celebrate Singing in the Rain, which is unfathomable is not there for who knows what reason. Yeah, it really doesn't make much sense at all. It's it's really interesting that you kind of summarized it with Mary Pickford, and it's really fascinating. And after 25 years now, it feels like we're finally getting this like new class in Hollywood, this new transition with our most recent Best Director. I mean, Ford, this being his last win, his last nomination as well. We're kind of seeing this transition into a new form of Hollywood with new stars and and this kind of progress where we're getting to really cement ourselves in color. And when it comes to High Noon versus The Greatest Show on Earth, I th- it's such a hard comparison because of how different these movies are. I, I talked about how much I would love to edit down The Greatest Show on Earth, and maybe that would be an interesting editing experiment that I could do is edit it down to two hours. But High Noon is an hour and 30 minutes. You open up the film. There's not even, like, credits. You're immediately, boom, placed into this world with our cowboy sheriff, you know, anti-hero. Hero. He's not an anti-hero. He is the hero. He is definitely the hero, as much as you could be a hero. And we're just introduced to him and his wedding, and we're immediately brought into this story. And it's such an engaging story with a lot of interesting, complex characters in this small little town. And it takes place in a small town. And it's all focused and really precise. And every single shot is so choreographed and perfect and framed. And and the editing is impeccable, continuing this pace, rapping forward and forward. And the music that kind of keeps our rhythm in this film and how it kind of builds up suspense as these villains, the real villains, are coming into town. And they're waiting for that train to finally bring them there to have their final standoff in battle. So it is such a streamlined straight gut punch of a story that it is couldn't be any different it's also in black and white it's mainly this kind of trimmed down cast it's not going for something that's kind of showy or extravagant it's just pure and simple incredible filmmaking while the greatest show on earth is just all over the place with goofy weird performances just cgi that just not CGI, but com- yeah, compositing, CGI. compositing that is just so distracting and green screening that you can't like look away from because of how goofy it looks and a story that is just so thrown in there half haphazardly, haphazardly and just all over the place where characters, we don't care about them. Another boring love triangle, maybe the worst we've seen yet. But at the same time, I found it very entertaining and a fun watch. And I would totally recommend people to go see this just because of how weird and goofy and odd it is but is it time to kind of debate whether you think it's one or the other yeah so i there the debate is there the debate is certainly fair for high noon versus gray show on earth obviously i think you can kind of tell which way i would lean uh especially because i would want to include a movie that's not included on this year's list which is singing in the rain um it's 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 one of those just really disappointing moments where, and it, and I think it's fairly, you know, it's, I think it's fair to criticize that this win, that this is really just, Hey, 
Cecile B. DeMille, we, we got to give you one. You're nearing the end of your life. It's been long overdue. We haven't done it for any of your other movies, whether that's right or not right. So here you go. And, and honestly, what's frustrating is because only four years later, the Ten Commandments come out. And that one should have won. Like, that was actually a really good movie compared to what did win, which we will get there in four episodes. So we've got some time to get there. But give you a little sneak preview that, like, Demille had one more in him. And that one more, I think, was still much better than what this one was. So it seems very premature and that maybe they just did this because, again, because they probably felt maybe he was nearing the end of his life, which he, he was, but it still, like, had at least five more years down the road until then. So... Yeah, so I I think High Noon should have won over this, but let's give some stats and figures for The Greatest Show on Earth. Currently, it holds a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. The average Rotten Tomatoes rating is a 5.49. The top critics percentage gave it a 60%. And interestingly, Rotten Tomatoes says their top critic rating average is a 10 out of 10. But only nine, it's only out of nine people that are top critics have reviewed this movie. So... That there's some different numbers in there and, and maybe not totally factual. So be, I need, would need to go to each individual review to understand because sometimes they include reviews from the time the movie came out and that may have been glowing, whereas you look at a modern review and it, it critiques it more. But anyways, an audience score percentage for on Rotten Tomatoes is a 54 of an average Rotten Tomatoes rating of 3.37. IMDb gives it a 6.6. Metacritic does not rate this movie. It won two Academy Awards out of five nominations. This is the last Best Picture winner until Spotlight in 2016 to win less than three Academy Awards. So, John, let's give our personal ratings for The Greatest Show on Earth. I gave The Greatest Show on Earth a 65 out of 100. Now, for me, I don't have as much criticism as... You may have with some of the cinematography, some of the technical elements I kind of overlook and kind of let go by. For me, the the real big issues are the story and the kind of lack of concrete whether this is a film or not. And that's kind of the, the biggest issues for me is that this is so interweave with documentary footage. They don't really like focus on enough of it being a story. And then the other parts of it are just showing a circus, which is interesting, but I don't really consider that to be a, a cinematic film or a film. What about you, Ben? So I gave The Greatest Show on Earth a 45, which right now that's tied for uh, tied for my third lowest with Simmerin. Uh, great, uh, the Life of Emile Zola follows that, and then The Broadway Melody is my worst rated. So a 45 is not great. The technical, I, as I said, the technical aspects of this movie are just flat out bad. It tries too much, and it just is not successful at all. It tries to be innovative, but falls flat on its face. The cinematography is is just is what it is at times. It's documentary at times. It tries to be extravagant, but also it fails because of the green screen, the lack of green screen being successful. The sound of this movie is very off. It, it sounds like it's blown out. It sounds distorted at times. The singing is not great. The acting is like James Stewart barely saved this, saved this movie. And even so, like, there's still not enough of his character that is the best part of the movie from it. Because, again, it's like three distinct different movies. So, for me, this this one just falls flat. The merits, I guess I would give it for, is that, yeah, it's cool to see the circus. That's fun. It, it tries to be something. But everything else just it really falls flat for me. So, it is a 45. So, our average ratings for right now, out of 25 movies, John, you are at a 70.92. And I am at a 
So, is The Greatest Show on Earth worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1952? I'm going to have to say no. But I think my no is going to be a little bit different because I know you're going to say, and spoiler, I know you're going to say no. But for me, it really just comes down to like, I don't think I can call this a full film. I think there's just so much of it trying to be just documentary or just kind of archive footage of the circus that it takes away so much from the actual film that I can't really say in full that, yes, this should be worthy. Plus, we also have, as you mentioned, High Noon, The Quiet Man, Singing the Rain, Moulin Rouge. There's some really big heavy hitters here that would probably kind of go beyond, and especially I would consider those to be full-fledged films. But tell me, Ben, is this worthy? So I might surprise you, John, but um, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, this this is this is a absolute not worthy for me. I want to kick this away and say shoot to it, get out of here. You do not belong on this list. It is a a black spot, a black mark on the Academy's resume among a lot of many. But in terms of their best picture winners, this is a one of the lower points for me. It it just makes no sense. Why this movie really won besides the fact, hey, Demille hasn't won one yet. Let's throw him a bone. It it's it it just isn't there. And, and for me, it, it goes back to this argument that's happening today, which is like, hey, movies that are popular and at the top of the box office, those need to be the Oscar contenders, not, you know, independent movies or movies that that are what you would call Oscar baby dramas, you know, some epic like like some people really feel so open arms because. Marvel movies aren't nominated for Best Picture. You know, Spider-Man this year wasn't nominated for Best Picture. But then to me, I look at this argument and it's like, it's not like the Academy has, like, forgot about them. They've been doing, like, big grand movies for years. And honestly, like, if I go through it, I think they kind of stopped this in the late 70s, early 80s, where they start to go a little bit more independent, where they start to go to the smaller films, the more Oscar-baity ones. Because, honestly, it's grand big box office for most you know for the next like 15 years like in the academy and even before like gone with the wind that was a huge movie how green is my valley that was a big one mrs miniver was big casablanca was a huge movie like it so to bring up this argument that the oscars never brings the popular ones like no that's just not wrong they just it's it's an ebb and flow of it maybe eventually it will correct itself and it will include the spider-man the batman movies the super like any of the superhero movies that you want to see there but it's not like it, it's ignored it entirely in its past. Black Panther was nominated. Like, it's gonna, like Lord of the Rings, one of the biggest successful movies of all time. Like, that's, people think that that's just an Academy Award winning movie and one of the best box office movies. So, I don't know. That's, so like, that's going as a whole other tangent. But this is the big box office movie of 1952. Maybe that's why they wanted to give it best picture. But I just, when I hear people trying to argue and be like, but I want Spider-Man there. It's like, okay, like they just didn't want Spider-Man there this year, but they put John's favorite nightmare alley. So kudos to them for that. <laughs> all, all else I got to say is just uh, be kind to animals and give all your uh, fur babies a little pat and kiss on their head. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is worthy.
come again to the greatest show on earth. Bring the children. Bring the old folks. You can shake the sawdust off your feet, but you can't shake it out of your heart. Come again, folks. The greatest show on earth. Come again. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.